This conversation has literally taken me weeks to work out how to introduce it. It is a conversation which is so rich on so many levels because of the conviction and generosity in equal measure of our guest, Kate Billing. This is a conversation that weaves its way through leadership, which is absolutely Kate's space, and the masculine and feminine working in harmony. But its thread, its ever-powerful thread, is a god on a stair straight into the eyes of midlife, and particularly for women. For me, personally, this conversation was exquisite. We dive into liminal spaces, the spaces we enter as women in our 40s and our 50s that exist between who we were and who we are becoming. And there are so many takeaways. The conversation is as rich as it, as it is powerful and effortless. But the moment that's etched itself into my brain, and you will hear it, it stands out, is a moment when I realize exactly where an all-pervasive myth and stereotype is actually stronger than the evidence of my own lived experience. So grab your coffee, pour a wine, throw your running shoes on, and settle in for one of the most powerful conversations to date in Raise 1000 Voices. Raise 1000 Voices is the podcast on a mission to raise the voices of the clever, creative, and courageous women across the world. I am your host, Jacqueline Nagel, and I invite you to join me in conversations with women who will inspire and empower you as we explore just how to lift our levels of self-trust, to reclaim the narrative, and to use our voice to go after exactly what we want, doing it with strength, power, and grace. So right now, it is my immense pleasure to welcome Kate Billing to the next conversation in the Raise 1000 Voices podcast series. Kate, welcome. Thanks very much, Jacqueline. Lovely to be here. It's really lovely to connect face-to-face. Kate, for those of us listening along at home, where in the world are you right now? I am on the sunny shores of beautiful Lake Taupo in the centre of the North Island of New Zealand at the moment. One of the fantastic things out of COVID is getting to spend more time down here where my parents are and where my parents-in-law are not far away and where I get to be a lot closer to nature and all the beauty this country has to offer. Yeah. Rather than always in the guts of things in Auckland. (laughs) Yeah. And Lake Taupo is beautiful. It's one of my favourite places in New Zealand. Um, so that's where you are right now. Kate, we all know you for, well, we've come to know you through social and digital for this thing called human-centred leadership. Also have come to know you for being someone who's not afraid to say what's on her mind. Take us into the story of how you've got to here and how you've evolved and what's going on in your world at the moment. Oh, yeah, that's the rest Big of conversation. Yeah, that's, that's the rest <laughs> of our time. Job done. I'll just, I'll just be quiet now and let you go. How's that sound? Yeah, I think if I think about it, I've been thinking about this a bit later lately, like how to describe it in three short kind of ways. You know, the six-word haiku that is the story. And I think I would say, if I was to cover it in six word, I would say human obsessed, serial founder, midlife activist uh, is what I'd say. I've been obsessed with what it is to be human since I was about 10 years old when I decided I wanted to be a doctor because I wanted to work out why people got sick because I'd been quite sick. And that then, like two years later, I was obsessed with Nazi Germany and Hitler and how could something like that happen, carrying every book I could muster under my arms out of the public library because there was no internet, dear listeners, in those days. You know, so since I was very young, like ending primary school intermediate, being completely obsessed with what it is to be human, and have provided myself with lots of lived experience, crash and burns along the way, especially through my <laughs> 20s, yeah. to provide my own grist for the mill, as well as had the good fortune to work professionally in this space, in HR, and then in the last 14 years in the leadership space. I think that the serial founder thing is I'm, a, I'm an explorer. Yeah. I'm really curious. I'm a starter of things, and when it comes to founding things, those have been both businesses, they've been in the not-for-profit slash cause-related space, and also, you know, starting things up even when I had corporate jobs. So starting, being, I've always been a change maker. Yeah. And I think I'm just living more and more into that now that I'm in midlife and have permission and resource, et cetera. 
And I suppose that comes to the midlife activist. Midlife is its own thing. Wow. Who knew? Yeah, it is its own thing. And you're you're in complete denial until you wake up one day and you realize I'm here. Yeah, it's like it's not it's not it's that thing that happens to other people. It's that thing that happened to previous generations. And then one day you wake up and you go, "Oh, bang! I'm here." Yeah, is that how it felt for you? Because well, I felt like I literally got landed in it. Yeah, and I kind of caught me by surprise. And I speak to lots of people about this this denial that we have that you speak of like it can't possibly be here and it's like well how long do you think you're going to live pretty much pretty <laughs> sure you're halfway now so and I mean and, and that conversation in and of itself about mortality which is a conversation I have with leaders like what's your number yeah how old are you going to be when you die and so you actually ask that in these conversations yeah yeah love it and then we get well, there's a whole piece that goes around this because it's you know there are different stages we have in life and midlife is definitely a turning point, and I feel like it's a crucible of change for women, especially because we have the hormone-fueled transformation, transition of perimenopause and menopause, but men go through it as well. Absolutely. It is a time of life where we recognize our own mortality. We start to get pissed off about a bunch of different things and let a whole lot of other things that we used to be pissed off about go. And... I also, I just think it's, now that I'm through the worst of it, I hope, in terms of the turning point, I really do believe it's a time for us, and particularly for our generation, to make some noise and make some change in our own lives, but Mm. in the world around us. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I could not agree more. And I've noticed that it's like, I mean, people talk about, and excuse the language, but people talk about, you know, I now have zero fucks to give. And I said to someone the other day, I said, it's not that I have zero fucks to give. I'm just very careful about where I put them now. It's not that I've actually stopped caring. I just realize what matters because I feel like God put me on notice at some point in this last period of time. It's like, it's not that I believe I'm going to die tomorrow. It's just that like it gets serious and get done what you need to get done. Is that kind of what you feel comes up in those conversations with the leaders? Yeah. And there is, I mean, there's a, there's no doubt there's a lot of turmoil and because there's a liminality, which is a word I love, this idea of liminal space. We're not what we were, but we're not what we will be. Yeah. And we've been so busy living life, doing business, doing leadership, trying to be parents, all the rest of it, kind of following the rule book, following the map of acquisition, you know, get qualified, get a job, get a partner, get a house, get kids in any order on that, by the way, increasingly all over the place for us with the expectations that one thing follows after another, and it kind of does, and then the world has changed and we've changed. And this time in life for this generation is is full of challenge and opportunity that I don't think we've necessarily, our forebears have always had. Every generation goes through this. This doesn't matter what generation you are, you go through midlife. But we're certainly in a place where we have, I think, some different things that we start to, and I'm all for swearing, by the way, (laughs) <laughs> They'll just the production team will just put a profanity warning on us. I got one a couple of weeks ago. I was like, oh, so look at sorry. that. <laughs> That's sorry, okay. Sorry, guys. But we will limit it to F bombs. You know, the the challenges of looking after our parents who are also at a point where they're being surprised by aging. Yeah. And their bodies and potentially their minds letting them down and they're not ready to let go. They've been vital for longer than ever before. We are going to be vital in midlife for 10 to 20 years longer than any generation before. You know, at the same time that many of us still have kids at home. And I don't mean like grown-up kids who refuse to move out. I mean like primary school, intermediate age kids while we're in our late 40s, 50s. So there are, in terms of the things that one has no choice about giving fucks about, a bunch of them are still on the dance card but I think we get to a place where we recognize we've only got so much capacity. Yeah. So we're going to, the things we're going to give a shit about, we are going to like put muscle behind yeah. and allow ourselves to get right royally pissed off about things and do something about it, hopefully. And the things we recognize we can't control or can't have impact over, we're just going to let them, we're going to have to let them go because now's the time. Yeah, I think that's been one of the changes I've noticed just myself and friends and family is that letting go and I believe and maybe this is just hopeful and wishful, I feel as though we're actually much better at letting it go now than previous generations 
and it's a recognition that it's okay to let things go. I'm going to ask a fairly personal question here because I've watched some of the pissed off come out in your stuff and I want to go to some of those in a moment, but what are the things that have surprised you about what you've had to let go or what you've chosen to let go? And what has surprised me, I think it maybe hasn't surprised me that I've had to let go of things, but it's maybe surprised me how much work it's taken, is to do with ageing. Yeah. First and foremost, like, because I've never been one of the classically, never identified as, or being seen as, I think, from the outside, one of the classically sort of pretty, beautiful women who conform to social norms about what that looks like. I kind of, in lots of ways, thought I was going to be immune from a bunch of this ageing stuff. Because <laughs> you're different. <laughs> because I wasn't as invested in you know, looking a particular way or necessarily getting the iteration of men because I looked a particular way or anything. But turns out aging's a bitch, whether you have those things or not. It just sparks sparks it in a whole different way, I think. And recognising how deeply ingrained, although I hadn't seen them, how below the surface and how deep and strong some of those internalised ageist, misogynistic, things are inside myself and and then seeing them in other women, you know, who are going through a very unexpected confidence crisis in, in midlife. So the things we thought we'd kind of, oh, yeah, I've got all this experience, connections, credentials, positioning, all of the stuff. I should be able to, like, let go of what people think or how I look or whether I'm useful or anything like that. And I, I find myself and in, in many, many other women that I speak to really blindsided by how that hits them. Yeah. So I think it's that's, that's been some of the stuff that's been like the tent, the, the little hooks are really deep, Yeah, really deep in. They really are unconscious mm. because I've been quite similar and I've been really... And I remember being in a room in the US with some incredible entrepreneurial women. And one of them was a female leadership coach out of Canada. And she talked about everyone goes through dark night of the soul. So women all go through dark night of the soul, which is this point where we realize we're aging and we question things and we decide things and we choose things and we do it with volition. And and she was talking about mythically that women who don't make it through dark night of the soul become crones. So you can actually go through it and choose not to participate. And that's what creates a crone character and the others become, you know, the happy, fulfilled, barefoot, you know, older, wise woman who's a bit cheeky with life. And I remember thinking, oh, yeah, I get that, but I'm I'm okay. And then you hit it. So that surprise, it does blindside even when you know it's coming. What is it that breaks your heart about watching women struggle with that? And it does. And it does because it's broken my own heart for my own struggle. Yeah. You know, and there's, there's a lot of healing, I think, that we have to – you know, creating this space. People talk, you know, the self-care, self-compassion thing that people bandy about at a very, you know, thumbnail deep level. When we actually have, I think, the opportunity through the Dior Dark Night of the Soul piece of how do we suffer better through this mm. in a way that allows us to surface what really needs to be done, what needs to be looked at the opportunity we have to heal and to grow and to decide who we want to be. Mm. And what I see, have experienced in myself and I see the struggle in others that that is heartbreaking is this, a fear of like this clinging on desperately to this, who they've been in the past and these ideas of what makes them valid and valuable and beautiful and all the rest of it based on these unconscious things that are deeply wired in, right? Seeing the struggle of that, feeling the struggle of it with them, particularly now having my own experience, and knowing now I'm kind of I'm in, in free fall between the ropes. I think about like a tra- like flying trapeze. Yeah. You know, you've got to, you're flying around on one, you've got to be prepared to let go of it and fly through the air and know that there are hands on the other side to catch you. And I think that that no man's land in the middle of letting go, not knowing, you know, if there are hands on the other side to catch you. Just the fear that's associated with this transition and letting go of everything we think made us what we were 
without understanding what's on the other side. And uh, this is one of the things for me about the importance, you know, you, you're, what you're doing here with the podcast, et cetera, and the importance of raising voices is I think the missing voices for me are the midlife women yeah, and the women just on the other side of it who can be the hands on the other side of the trapeze. Yeah. We say, you know, let go, jump. It's with it. It makes me feel a bit emotional thinking about it. Because it, it just is such, it's a no man's land and it's, it feels lonely and isolating and empty and fraught with, you know, risk and fear and judgment. But we've got to walk through it. Yeah, we have to go through it. It's interesting you say about, you know, the midlife women and the women aren't just on the other side of it because when I think about who has come into the group programs that we've created in the last six to eight months, that's exactly who they are. They're essentially from 40s through to late 60s mm-hmm. and right across the board. And when you just described that, then I thought, yep, this is actually the women because they actually know that they want to raise their voice. They actually know that they want to be heard. And some of them are still navigating what that looks like. But they're also looking for new community because there are mm. communities falling yeah. apart or falling away, and it's not a it's not a disruptive, dramatic stuff. It's it's all of a sudden it's like I'm standing here on my own. Is that something that you've been witness to? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think one of the things you know, and I'm talking about those voices being missing in all areas of our life and work, right? Yeah. And for our generation, you know, and when I say our generation. I'm speaking more, I'm Gen X, but I'm speaking more broadly in that there is kind of this bottom half of the boomers who are still in the workforce and the older millennials who are now having their 40s. Yeah. You know, you're not the babies anymore, guys. It's, you know, so there's a generational aspect to it, but it's more about a life stage Yeah. thing. And that, you know, there are all kinds of reasons that our circles dissolve and people be left of each other but also people change and maybe the people who were part of your life because you happen to have kids in the same class at school to actually the people who are going to be the right journey partners with you in the second half of life we're in the workforce in greater numbers than ever but are the people around us at work those people who we choose yeah yeah are we even being given the opportunity to see that this is a choice that we have you know, are the women who've been ahead of us on the career path because of who they had to become to to make it work in a version of the world that doesn't exist so much anymore? Are they the people we admire? And then when you look at the mainstream media, film, social media, all those kinds of things, there's a yawning gap. They're just kind of women just disappear in the 40s. Yeah. I mean, there are a few things. God for the Oscars and a few really fantastic films with great casting where there are women in their early 60s, you know, film and TV, Golden Globes, Oscars, you know, they're incredible. But this is just a few and we're only beginning to see them. But they don't look like the classic stereotype midlife women because the stereotype's bullshit. But there's just this gap between like late 40s and maybe – like late, mid to late 60s, early 70s, there's almost a 20-year gap, I reckon, where women of our generation are not represented in a way that's accurate. You either have to look like you're 30 or you're Helen Mirren. Yeah, and it's interesting because one of the things, Cindy Gallup, who I know that you follow as well across socials, is very big about Say Your Age. I embrace that completely because... And I did post on social media a while ago. I took a photo. I was getting online to do a podcast interview with someone in the US. I was actually dressed to go out for lunch. So I was in full makeup and Camilla and all that sort of stuff. And I took a photo as I went live because I just posted saying, I don't know what I thought 50 would be, but it wasn't this. And, you know, and it wasn't about looking amazing like I should be 30 or 40. And it wasn't about you know, where am I going? It was just simply, this is 50 and we didn't grow up with this. And it's exactly what you're saying. Like we've still got these stereotypes entrenched about what we're supposed to be at this age. And you're right. I think it's because, and I'd love to ask a question here, this gap that we've got, like, you know, because realistically 50 and 60 is not what we grew up with. And we're actually creating the stereotype and the caricature, if you like, of who, what this is. Do you think part of it is because I've started doing some conversations around, do we give too much power to be we, we can't be what we can't see? 
because no one can see our generation right now because it's the first time that we've had this much freedom. It's the first time that we're actually aging later. It's the first time, as you said, there's still kids at home in your 40s and 50s. It's the first time for a lot of these things. So is some of what is creating this instability for us, the fact that we've given too much power to that whole motto, you can't be what you can't see, because we've got to create it right now. Yeah, I mean, look, diversity and diversity, inclusion and belonging, important stuff, but there are, you know, there are, there are some things that no matter the domain that are possibly unhelpful at times, and I think this is one of them, where it can't instantly be fixed. Yeah. And we are talking about, you know, these these mental models and stereotypes were entrenched. So the thing about stereotypes, like it's a mental model of generalization that exists in society widely, like it's widely held across many minds. And I look at this and uh, some of the work I do with people, you know, we look at unexamined stereotypes and stereotype threat and how these things can inadvertently like can cause limiting self-talk and therefore beliefs and therefore behaviour, which means we're not stepping up that kind of stuff, right? So I think the thing about these stereotypes is they began to be formed in our minds when we were kids and women in their 50s and 60s were our grandmothers. And your grandmother in the 80s was like the golden girls on TV who were, you know, there's been much talked about the Golden Girls versus Sex in the City reboot and how they were meant to be the same age and how they looked different. And I, I think it's a bit ageist as well because, first of all, the current lot, had it's their job to look that good. They've had significant yeah. money spent on it, even if it's just on having their meals cooked for them and having a you know personal trainer every day. But, you know, there's kind of this saying that they look better makes golden girls wrong and that's not right either no who's to say that that you know i think we've got to be careful because anywhere we get into this conversation we trip up over ageist stereotypes Mm. you know and when we i look at my when i have people describe what they think the middle-aged woman stereotype is and it's the first word always that must be fascinating it's very fascinating (laughs) first words always the same no matter the group what do you think the first word would be if they were describing the middle-aged woman stereotype? The word that's coming to mind, I know it's not the right word, is plain, but that I don't know that that's it. Yeah. Yeah, it's by 95% of the time there's like this moment of silence in the room and then somebody smiles and goes, frumpy. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's like nobody wants to, when you start unpacking it all, I'm like, how does that make you feel? And do you want to identify as that? And everyone's like, oh, no. So where yeah. do these things come from? And how do we all have them? Because what we're actually describing is a very poor description of women who are generally 25 years older. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like we've got it, we've got it all wrong. And it's interesting because we go to frumpy or we go to, as I did, to plain or something in that vein, and yet my grandmothers, who were very much that golden girls type thing but add in a a lot of faith-based belief as well, but they were the lights of my life. So why do we describe them as frumpy and plain? Like when we're thinking about that 25 to 30 years later to what we are now, because they literally were the lights of my life as a child. Mm. Right, and I had no idea that they were frumpy or plain or anything until the uh, until the broader world gave me that definition. But you know, as a child and a teenager, and even in my twenties, they were vibrant and the light of my life. So we're actually not even correlating it to our experience, are we? Nope. Wow. We're not because the minute you start to interrogate it, it doesn't hold any water, and yet we are unconsciously. I think I'm actually getting goosebumps with this because like literally I just went like what you just said we don't the minute we interrogate it doesn't hold water because I'm actually sitting here going oh wow like I've actually always thought of you know this age but my grandmothers at this age were really vibrant Mm -hmm. so there's literally no credence to this none so where does it come from you're in this space all the time where do you think it comes from yeah look this is the thing about stereotypes they're social constructs Mm. right there's stories that we have which are by and large, perpetuated and fed through story. Yeah. And the way we get story in our culture, by and large, is through the media. Yeah. We also, and this depends on the industry you're in, we also 
further to you or if you can't see it, you can't be it kind of thing. They just aren't necessarily, have not been for our generation, senior women around in the workplace um, by and large. And the ones that were around, and I mean, I came through in big law firms and stuff like that. So yeah. they were, it was all power suited up to the armpits. Yeah. You know, navy, black, and looked like a man, not, invariably never wore makeup, you know, things like that, like really fiercely intelligent, incredibly successful women who worked extraordinarily hard to get seen and heard and to own their place at the table. Unbelievable what those women were able to do. But when I think about being in my 20s and looking at women who were in their 50s at the time, they got out of, they were just, they disappeared before then. Yeah. You did not see senior women in professional services environments. And even now in a lot of law firms, say, lots of young women coming up as lawyers and into senior associate level, it's when it starts to get to partner level that things get a bit interesting. And even if you look at the, and actually this is not even increasingly, the more I look at this and the more I talk to people about it, you don't actually see that many men over 50 in big law firm partnerships either. So I'm like, what's happening? Where's everyone going? Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, they're kind of like, they're dropping off. So where are we going? Well, and women, are senior women, are resigning in twice the numbers of men at the moment, of senior men. It's Yeah, I did read something about that last week. Yeah. It was quite extraordinary, the numbers and the rate. Yeah, and so it's happening globally. McKinsey, Women in the Workforce Survey, the latest one last year, talked about it. Anecdotally, I know from organisations here in New Zealand it's happening, and the reasons are the same. And that is work-life balance, mm-hmm. well-being, or career. Yeah. And generally, they're wanting they're wanting like flexibility in their career, or they're wanting things. They're needing to take. Women are exhausted. Yeah. Running on fumes. They've got higher rates of burnout. Burnout rates for for senior women is about forty-two percent, thirty-one, I think, for men. You know. So I think, but our generation is also looking at it, going, so what's happening? is people are waking up to this midlife thing and going, if I feel this good now, once I'm through the feeling shit, but, and am I going to want to retire? Yeah. Do I want to keep working the way I am now? Because I'm pretty knackered. I can't do another 15 years at this. And actually, what if I don't want to stop or can't stop mm. in 15 years? There was a the research came out today saying just under 21% of New Zealand boomers in the workforce are going to have to keep working beyond 65 because they can't afford to retire. Yeah. At the same time that the government are beginning to talk about putting retirement age up for super. Yeah. And that's, I think that's an, it's an interesting, it's almost like we're getting forced into like the visual that's in my mind is the the closing walls. Like, you know, it's kind of like some people there's one on one hand, we are absolutely more aware that we may not want to stop working. And because especially if we're still active and capable, on the other hand, it's also too, I think most of us want to get to a point where it's a choice. For me, it's no longer about do you retire or don't you retire? It's about do I have the choice about what I choose to do? And I think that's been the important thing coming out for me is it's not even about retirement superannuation balances. It's actually about how do I get to a position of choice? So we're talking about there's quite a lot of shit stuff that goes down when we're trying to navigate this midlife bit and we first realise we open up and we're like, oh, my goodness. And I'm one of the fortunate ones for whatever reason I haven't even hit perimenopause yet. So I'm kind of, you know, gratefully hanging on to that, also knowing it may slam into me at any moment. There's also a lot of beauty in this era, in this phase, and there's a lot of what would you say is the beauty in this? What are the gifts in this? What's the beautiful things that you've come to embrace and understand? I think one of them is learning to love your body as it is. Yeah. <laughs> Hallelujah. <It's, laughs> yeah. You know, which is, is a day-to-day, you know, it's a day-to-day thing. But, you know, learning to love your body as it is and every day, like, it's never going to get any better than this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's going to be, you, instead of looking back, you know, at the beginning of it was looking back at pictures of me when I, myself when I was younger and thinking, oh, my God, you know, I had an eating disorder in my 20s and looking at myself going, what did you see? Yeah. What did you see? You know, and feeling real compassion for that and getting to a place now of, of kind of, you know, one of the things I did as part of this was I 
I've always wanted to have a big visible tattoo because it's, yeah. and I feel, so I have this, people who are listening, you won't be able to see this, but I got like a full sleeve tattoo on my right arm and I feel more myself than ever because I have chosen, and it's interesting, the comments, the conversations that prompted with other women of, you know, my, my age in their early 50s, saying I've chosen to mark my body with something that makes it mine. Yeah. You know, and I feel more beautiful and more myself with it. And because I give less fucks about what my corporate clients think, I think anyone who doesn't want to work with me because I've got a visible tattoo can trot on. Yeah. You know. <laughs> Exit stage right, please. Exit stage right. But so that's so I think there's this loving your body as it is. I think there is appreciating your parents. Mm. in ways that you haven't before as they begin to need you more and in different ways and and they change. And if you haven't negotiated an adult relationship with your parents, now is the time. Yeah, You will never regret, you will never regret changing that dynamic. I think our relationship with sex changes. Absolutely. And <laughs> and what it is and what we want and how prepared we are to ask for it. I think that's kind of part of the liberation. And I think that comes from accepting your body as it is and not having attention on how it looks. It's just how it feels, which is a really important thing. And one, I would say there is this, things like this I always get an eye roll about, you know, kind of really, but this like standing in your power. Like being yeah. in your body, being in your body in a way that's full of love and acceptance has the most ridiculous impact on your attitude and and your energy, your emotional state, your confidence and the willingness to bring all of you into every moment. Yeah. Because the self-conscious, the self-monitoring back here of do I look fat in this and I've got wrinkles and, you know, gray hair and stuff, once you kind of let go of that, there's like a veil that disappears between you and yourself and then the two of you because it's, you know, and the world, which is incredibly empowering and can be a little frightening for people around you. Yeah, I think it's actually I've seen that. I've seen people who are frightened by it. I mean, I'm relishing stepping into it personally, but I have seen people respond the opposite way. And I have to remember also to slow down and gather them up with that. You know, it's kind of like yeah, don't stepping be a bullet a gate. Yeah, like I have to slow down and gather others up because that's actually part of our, I feel that responsibility of middle age. If we're, if we're navigating it beautifully, I think part of our responsibility is to gather up. And I think that's one of the biggest shifts that we're probably seeing in our generation is we do stop and gather up, right? We don't kind of just blaze our own pathway and hope people keep up or don't care if people keep up. Yeah, Is that stepping into your full power? And one of the things that I really loved about you when I first connected with you through LinkedIn was you were just launching your T-shirts. Oh yeah. So that was that beyond was that part of what was behind that? Like take us in the t-shirts and what's written on them and why and because that was just I just loved it. So yeah, you're talking about the je suis trop, which means I am too much in French. And you was I am too much, I was not going to attempt the French. <laughs> yeah, I'm too much. Je suis trop. And it's je suis trop something by and large. And it started as it actually so my sister and I have, have always been a bit much, but in different ways. And we've grown up in a family where my parents are perfect foils for each other. My father was born out of his time. He's definitely not your ordinary garden variety human, fiercely intelligent, deeply romantic, massive big fella. And, you know, oh, he's a lot. And then my mother is this perfect tempering kind of agent with him. But growing up in that, in that family, first of all, there was no room for anyone but him a lot of the time. Yeah. But when we got out into the world, we've kind of been these people who've discovered that in ourselves. Yes. Whether we like it or not. Yeah. We are our father's daughters. And I think this it came out in a big way. My sister, during the first lockdown, she lives on her own. She's a compulsive creative, an actor, painter, photographer, you name it, to keep herself occupied at home in lockdown, every Friday she did this Frenchy Friday friendship with this drag character she created called Frenchy Themes, who was kind of Nigella Lawson meets some character off Saturday Night Live with drag makeup <laughs> and massive hair. And 
she kind of the whole thing was that she was too much. She was too tro. Anyway, and then she gave it to me on a sweatshirt for my birthday that winter because she's like, it's a family thing. You need to have this too. And my thing was, I reckon, you know, my story about it is different than her story about it, like where it comes from for her versus why it's important for me and why I kind of wanted to put it out there and say, who else feels like this and why not, you know, why not Why not wear a T-shirt? I think of it as a superhero outfit. It's like, oh, you, you know, wearing your undies on, wearing your undies on the outside kind of thing yeah. on days when you maybe need a bit of a boost and you're actually part of the point of saying, yeah, man, I might be yeah. according to you yeah. and everything else. But I'm, my conviction is that the ways in which we keep ourselves small, which we've been told by and large is a reaction to being told there's something about you that's too much, too emotional, too loud, too opinionated, too smart, too quiet. Yeah. You know, yeah, but it's not all about being extra that those things hold the key to you becoming whole and integrated and powerful in the world. So whatever the thing is that you think or have been told is too much, part of the work is recognize it's not, Yeah, you know, and live into it. I think that's one of the greatest gifts we can actually give ourselves is to be unapologetic about where we're too much Mm. and, you know, bringing that through into the world been talking a lot about middle age and this mid the mid stage of life. You also work a lot in the leadership space in that human centered, human obsessed leadership. I think is where we could actually very firmly plant you. <laughs> what is it that you're seeing from a workplace perspective in leadership with this changing demographic, with women and men trying to find their place? What is it that you're really seeing that we're challenged by? And then I want to go to what is it that your hope is for it, and how can we go through this together? So what I'm seeing that we're being challenged by is a combination of circumstance and context coming together, particularly for, say, this generation, and not just women, but probably women are at the pointy end of this particular combination, you know, and that is that we have new ways of working in terms of both flexibility and what flexibility really can be, not just where you work from on what days. Yeah. So the, the flexibility about where, when, and how we work, the technology that enables that, mm-hmm. you know, and life. Yeah. And, and that means the blurring, these two things together in terms of the blurriness of boundaries around work and the work identity and the place of work in our lives versus all of the other very important elements we need in our lives, how that's showing up in well-being and not just mental well-being, but physical well-being, overwhelm, burnout, The seed of change and the multiple elements of uncertainty and complexity that, I mean, the ways we've gone about strategy and planning and leadership are not, they're they're too fixed, they're too attendant on a steady state of circumstances for a period of time so that we, you know, so we're struggling to deal with how we work, where we work, the tools we work with, the work we do along with the fact that the world is changing and society is changing. And so what falls inside the remit of a leader's job is now like pastoral care. Yeah. Massive, which women took the load of through always. Women Teams that are led by women have better engagement and wellbeing outcomes, performance outcomes. We know that generally. But through the pandemic, that, that load was, was doubled up as well as the load that women were carrying at home in two career families where they still 52% of senior women still responsible for the majority of labor in the home. Yeah. So there are, there is a concatenation of stuff all coming together into this reality. That means we just, uh, the world has been created by us, but not for us. Yeah. That's the way I talk about it. And we, have an opportunity to understand more about what it is to be human and why we're showing up in the way we are and why we're struggling in the ways that we are in the world as it is. Because that also is part of building the intestinal fortitude and the capacity to make the changes that are necessary. You know, the the next 20 to 30 years is arguably the most pivotal in human history with what's happening in terms of climate planet, food, 
human population, which is actually now in rapid decline, which is going to be a problem. You know, there's a whole lot of stuff that we're going to have to lead through. Yeah. But we have to make it through. Mm. And if we think we're in trouble now, you know, just you wait. So help is coming and that through this is going to be incredible advances in technology, healthcare, you know, how we build homes, feed people, move people, all of these things. And, you know, we are going to be in the workforce over the next 10, 15, 20 years of that. Who do we need to become to lead through this time? Mm, I think that's a incredibly complex. It's a simple question with complex pondering that comes with that. What are the things that you're feeling into that we're going to have to bring to the table for that, to be able to lead through these times? Who do we need to be? My experience is that it requires deep levels of personal transformation and, and responsibility. So I talk about, you know, responsibility and humanity and accountability in terms of, of how we need to show up, that leaders need to be developing deep understanding of humanistic leadership, so what it is to be human individually and collectively, and how the ways that we are creating work and life work for and against that, yeah. and, where, and where the holes and pitfalls are. So that humanistic piece that we need to become more adaptive in the way that we create the experience of life and work and strategy and responsiveness. And if you know anything about high fitzes work, we know that this thing called design of productive distress yeah. when we're working on adaptive challenges, right? And in the, the conversation has always been, we go up into the zone of productive distress, terrible name, by the way. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but it <laughs> does accurately, it, well. it doesn't describe it very well. Over the other side of that, you know, there's like too much heat. And I think the reality of where we are is that people are living full-time in the zone of productive distress with time up in above the line where we're above that limit of tolerance. Yeah. You have the threshold of learning below which you're just like bored. Yeah. And then you have the limit of tolerance above that where you just you can't physiologically, you can't think, you can't connect, yeah. you can't, you, the brain is prioritizing certainty above all else. So we've got to understand how to better navigate and create the conditions for operation inside the zone of productive distress as a as the place we spend pretty much all our time now. But watch that we're not making technical challenges, adaptive challenges when they're not them because we're complexity-creating machines, right? Yeah, absolutely. So there's this whole adaptive to leadership piece. And then there is how to do collaboration proper. Yeah. Not this kind of, oh, we had a meeting, so we must be collaborating. You know, but how to organize for it, how to be the humans who can do it, how to create the conditions for emergent practice and safe fail experiments. You know, not everything is a high stakes game. Yeah. Devolved decision making, team based organizations. You know, there's, there's a lot to it, all of which at the center sit a human being that needs to understand themselves to be able to work with others. Yeah, and my thing is if everyone, under, it's pretty simple, if you understand how to human better and everybody learns how to human better, then together we're going to make it. I love that. I really love that because it's actually, and I think that's one of the gifts of this, this whether we call it middle age, whether we call it dark night of the soul, I think that's one of the gifts that we come out with is that we have to human better, full stop. Having said that, do you think that's one of the gifts that we bring to the table as middle-aged, middle-stage women, is the ability to human better and to hold others to account for it? Yeah, I think we have an opportunity to do that, but we have to do the work on ourselves first. Ourselves. Yeah. You just don't, yeah. we don't get a ticket because we're middle-aged women. I believe firmly through this dark night of the soul thing, this journey to wisdom and acceptance and power, proper power, that if we're prepared to do the work, we can contribute in the most unbelievable ways and we can actually help men yeah. to become the people they need to be in the new world as well because they're stuck. Oh, absolutely. They're stuck in stereotypes. They're stuck in gendered roles. They're stuck in the patriarchy where they benefit in lots of ways. But let's be clear, it's not all good times. No, and it's interesting because even, you know, I first started doing some specific projects just with women years and years ago and then as we spoke about, Previously, I've come back into it. 
But I've, my mantra has always been to be great women. We also need great men. Like it, this is not an either or. This is not an exclusionary event. You know, we need to allow them to step into greatness as well. When it comes to these gifts that we're going to have about how to human better, what's been, and, you know, we do need to do the work. I also believe you can't take people where you haven't been. So on one hand, I do believe that we give too much power to you can't be what you can't see. But for us to human better, we have to, as you keep saying, do the work. And I also think I've been doing the work constantly for over 20 years now. And it's like when people say, how do you? It's like, it's not an overnight thing. I didn't just wake up and decide to. It's been this constant iteration, going to the floor, standing up again, going the floor again, standing up again, and then also accepting that I go to the floor and that that's okay. So when you're going through all of that, what has been the thing that you've had to really dig into to be able to navigate that yourself? Well, at core to it for me, the thing that comes up is this relationship I have with myself. And I think it's the same. You know, I I say to people, you come in with you, you go out with you, and you're the only one who's present to everything you think, feel, say, and do in between. Yeah. Like you are both a participant and, and a spectator to every moment of your own life. And nobody else is. You know, like the relationship we have with ourselves is is just mission critical. How do we talk to ourselves? How do we see ourselves? How do we talk about ourselves to others? What level of responsibility do we take for our thoughts, feelings, actions? How much do we understand how the brain works, how our body works, how it's Mm -hmm. changing? Mm -hmm. You know, this cultivating an honest, supportive, loving relationship with self, which can be challenging. Mm. both the creation of that, the cultivation of it and nurturing of it through time and the nature of the relationship in general, you know, it's not always about a loving, even with yourself. You have to be able to sit yourself down and without being a bitch about it, have a really like toe-to-toe conversation, like not duck and dive around these things. And I, I think that my experience is that's where it starts. Because the more you get into a situation of noticing what you're thinking, feeling, saying, and the impact of that on you and others, the more you are in your body experiencing when you're tired, experiencing when you're proper hungry, not just bored and want to eat, experiencing the way sleep, how to get best sleep for your body, particularly as we age, that gets a little bit more challenging. You know, this relationship that you have with all aspects of your experience is critical to all of it. Mm. Like if you don't have that sorted, the rest of it's a complete waste of time. Yeah. You won't actually be able to do it. You'll just be window dressing. Yeah. And I think the window dressing is a, is a challenge. It's interesting. I've come to realise that, you know, women come into my world because they want to speak in some way, shape or form. They want to be heard. They want to raise their voice. They want to speak. They want to cut through the noise. They want to be heard. And what's really interesting is we had to change our programs a while ago because I realised that, the level of the power of our outer voice will never outstrip the level of self-trust. No. And if you haven't done the work internally, if you haven't actually learned how to be an observer to your thoughts, how to fall in love, and and I'd say to people all the time, like that inner critic that we all have on steroids by the time we're in our 40s, Mm. that inner critic actually comes from our inner voice, which is pure love. So we have to learn how to fold the inner critic back into the love of our inner voice so that we can actually raise our voice. And it's really interesting. I, I love that you've said that because it's so, I see women all the time and this, where it came from was they would get women ready for a stage. They would actually get on a stage or a platform, knock it out of the park and go to pieces. And I was sitting there going, what just happened? Like you are, you now have the evidence, right? But that because they hadn't done and got to know themselves beautifully and been in that real place of, I guess, heart-centered service, because you can't go to heart-centered service until you know yourself. They, it would just literally come through and take the legs out from underneath them. And that's why we actually change what we do to deal with that inner voice first, because otherwise it's just a flash of brilliance. It's like this roller coaster, flash of brilliance, go to the floor, flash of brilliance, go to the floor. And that's one of the things that breaks my heart when it comes to this sort of work. Kate, we've done a lot of conversation. I could talk to you for hours. One of the things that I would love to know as we kind of start to wrap up, because I don't really want to wrap up, one of the things I would love to know is who actually inspires you? Who do you look at and go, thank you for being here on this planet and showing me what's possible? Honourable mention to my parents yeah. because they really are examples of all the good things in life and of growth and struggle and improvement and humility. 
everything else. So I really do that. I mentioned my sister before. She's an endless inspiration to me. She's, you know, prepared to take punts and be herself and struggle with who she is and what she wants to be and including committing to being a painter with a capital P. Yeah. So, you know, I have I have family and my brother, if he would listen to this and I didn't mention him, would be disgusted that I didn't mention him. So Andy, you get a mention too. <laughs> You're amazing. <laughs> but I think there are a couple of people at the moment, like there are lots of people who I look to and I think, you know, gosh, thank you for doing great stuff. The two people at the moment for me, one is a woman called, she's an English woman called Aviva Wittenberg-Cox. And she is, she'd be in her early 60s maybe, and she is doing work in the gender and generational balance space. She's a rock star, man. And, like, as a human, she's amazing. And then the, like, the thinking and the work she's doing and the cage rattling that she's doing, including at places like Harvard and Cambridge and INSEAD and places like that, you know, she's, like, she is doing really important work amplifying this conversation and, and challenging slash inviting because I think it's always a bit of a combo, people into this space. Yeah. And the other person who I've had long-running crush on is a chap called Chip Conley, who I remember first seeing his and it's a brain crush, not a knicker crush. Yeah, I totally understand. Yeah. There's a difference. There is a big difference. <laughs> There's a big difference. But he, I first started, saw him and started following his work after I saw a TED talk he did looking at happiness as a model for business. And he built oh, yes. his Dwight of Evra. I have seen his, yeah. Boutique holiday, boutique hotel chain, which he then sold. He is now like the, he's the resident modern elder for Airbnb, and he wrote a brilliant book a number of years ago called Wisdom at Work, and it's it was the beginning of his work about modern eldering. And he started, it's a not-for-profit, I think, they started a, a social enterprise uh, called the Modern Elder Academy in Mexico, and I was meant to go there and do a week-long retreat with him in 2020, but then COVID. Yeah. I follow his work because he's an... He's a beautiful human and inspirational leader. He's very vulnerable in sharing his personal journey. He's he's recently had prostate cancer come back after surgery 15 months ago to remove it, and he's very vulnerable and open about that whole journey. But his commitment to the realisation of a shift in the concept of wisdom in the workplace and the place of ageing and eldering, yeah. eldering in, in workplaces I just, he's, you know, both of them are people in their early 60s who I look at and I think, yes, please, I'll be like you in another 10 years. I'll be like you. I'll be like you, that, you know, you're you're incredible as a human and the work you're doing is so important and inspiring, you know. So I think those are the people. That concept of eldering, just as you were speaking about it then, it's not a term I've heard. I've actually just written some notes because I'm going to go and find it all. That is something that we need, you know, ancient civilizations, elders. It's, um, you know, in a lot of cultures, you know, in a lot of Asian cultures, they don't have a problem with aged care homes because you look after your elders, like it's a generational responsibility. Just the groundedness that came in with the way that you talked about wisdom at work and eldering, you've just given me something to fall in love with because it's actually really what I want to see because it's, you know, people love when I go and mentor and coach, but would I necessarily go and land that CEO job in my 50s? You know, it's it's a really interesting place to be. And I just thank you for that. I feel like that's an incredible gift and I'm going to go and explore all of that. So when it comes to, you spoke about books then, are you a book or a podcast girl? I am both. Yay. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I am both. And yeah, and I listen to, um, it's a bit like, music I mean everything that I consume I consume a very wide and varied diet eclectic of all of the things because I think it's good for your mind the way eating a wide and varied diet is good for your body so podcasts one of the ones that I'm I'm loving at the moment is one called you I think it's called hang on I wrote it down somewhere because I thought you would ask me this one where did I write it you are not so smart 
Oh, I like it already. You want to tell me about it? It's by a guy called David McRaney. He wrote a book by this with the same name. Right. And it's all about it's if you it's in the humaning better fully fully human approach, which is my way of you know approaching leadership development, is understanding the mind. And this is it's all about our minds and how hard they are to change and everything. He he just like if you wanted to go and start with an episode, one that I would encourage people to have a look at is it's episode two forty four with Annie Duke, with Annie Duke, who wrote a book called Quit. Mm-hmm. And if you haven't heard of her, she is a professional poker player. Oh yes, I've actually heard an interview with her on another podcast. She's fascinating. Yeah. She's fascinating, right? And she she didn't she wasn't always a professional poker player, but if you want to a woman using her voice, she's one. But I love it. And there's another one actually that I've been there's a whole lot I listen to, but one I've got onto recently is one called Team Human by Douglas Rushkoff. Yeah. And he does these calls periodically where he has a whole community and listener base and they do these live calls. That's like talkback radio and his oh, wow. listeners can call in and he talks to them and so he's written a book called team human as well but he is an author of there's a special name for it but i can't remember it's sort of a i like existential sci-fi so anything that's (laughs) about human beings in a kind of weird and futuristic things he writes really great stuff so yeah that would be a couple of podcasts and another one would be exponential wisdom yeah, I follow that one and I love it. Yeah, yeah. I really love it. What about with books? Because if you're a prolific book reader like I am, I mean, the people listening along at home can't see the bookshelves behind me. That's just part of the library. I love books. I'm fascinated with books. I consume books. I have way too many books. What is it if you love books and picking out a favorite one is really hard. What are your bounce backs? Like what are the ones you always go back to? Uh, anything by Ryan Holiday for a start. Oh, yeah, I haven't read that for years. Actually. Anything by Ryan Holiday. Yeah. His books are all really, they're short, easy reads, and they're beautifully written. Yeah. He's into Stoic philosophy, which I'm a mad fan of. Yeah. And his one of his latest ones, his latest one is Destiny is Discipline, but the one before that, Courage is Calling. I, if in, in the theme of this podcast, I would encourage people to have a look for Courage is Calling. Yeah. Beautiful. He uses brilliant stories and, yeah, he's he's just a brilliant writer and researcher and very accessible. He's the author for The Daily Stoic as well, isn't he? Yes. Yes, yes. So I do have some of his work. I love his work. Yeah. My introduction to Stoicism was actually via his work. Yeah, it just makes it so easy to get your head around, you know, and Stoicism is the most practical practical school of philosophy you know it's not asking oneself all these nihilistic kind of questions about the pointlessness of life he's saying no life's we're here let's get on with it yeah you know yeah yeah and we do need to get on with it absolutely absolutely Kate when you think about you spoke about the way you were raised and being a little bit quieter at home because your dad was such a big presence in your life if you think about the little girl that you were to the woman that you are now what is it that you've brought with you from that little girl to who you are now? It got it got closed down for a while, but it's coming out now. And, and that's a willingness to be a little weird. And I think everybody is yeah. weird. And we put so much, I spent a long time masking it and behaving mm-hmm. and not putting silly looks on my face, you know, and not using my hands too much when I talked and all the rest of it. You know, it's so long containing all of it. That's, that she's been sitting in there. She's one of the characters, one of the personas I have in my self-talk kind of yeah. family is little little me. And I um, often meet with her in my mind on the front steps of the house that I grew up in and we have a chat. And, you know, it's about the, I feel I have the courage now to be who she wanted to be. That's powerful. That is absolutely powerful. And as we do actually wrap up, is there anything, final words of wisdom, final messages, final thoughts you'd like to leave the audience with? I think it's really just embrace all of it, like the messiness of being human and particularly in the middle 
the midway turning point is full of tumult and challenge and you will feel ungrounded. You will feel lost Mm. at times, but you are not alone. Mm. And through it, so don't anesthetize or step away from it. Really learn how to suffer better through this time because you will emerge the vision of yourself you were always meant to be. Yeah, I love that. Kate, thank you so much for your time and generosity in the conversation that we've had. I cannot wait to hear what our audiences think and that there'll be a lot of books that you've referenced in the show notes. And if anyone wants to connect with you, they can find how to do so in the show notes. Thank you so much, Kate Billing. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Love the conversation. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Raise 1000 Voices. I hope you've enjoyed the conversation as much as I have. And if you have, then I would love you to subscribe to and rate the show on your favorite platform. Our show notes, resources, and links to all our socials can be found at anygiventuesday.com.au forward slash podcast. And if you'd like to join a growing community of clever, creative, and courageous women who know that they want to be seen, heard, and remembered, then join us in our Facebook group, raise 1000 voices. Until we speak again, take care and remember you were born to raise your voice.